Listener Production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. This episode's been a long time in the making. My guest is Russell Engel, a proper modern-day legend of Australian motorsport. I'm beaming in from home and he's at his place on the Gold Coast. He's not really done the whole book or this-is-your-life chat, so we're immensely proud and thankful that he's decided to do a podcast. He really should do a book as well. I've known Russell for over 20 years. I've only ever known him to be a hard racer, something I really admire. He's a character, someone with a strong viewpoint and, importantly, conviction. This is the longest podcast I've done. Russell was up for a chat and I promise you will love every minute of it. For that reason, we've split it into three episodes, something we rarely do. We cover a huge amount of ground. His early years in karting that shaped the man we would come to know as the enforcer. We'll do something that hasn't often been done. Stop and celebrate a seriously impressive chapter racing overseas and some of the big names he went wheel to wheel with. The learnings from that important part of his career and the intensity of racing in Europe and the politics. Of course, we'll talk supercars, the first appearances at Bathurst, working with Larry Perkins and winning the great race. The influence of his close friend, the late Barry Sheen, winning the title with the Stone Brothers. That rivalry with Mark Scaife. His work in the media, including the success of his online show, The Enforcer and the Dude. We'll tackle some of your questions and have a few laughs about some behind-the-scenes stories. Listen out for a few things I hadn't heard before too. Opportunities in the US and the British Touring Car Championship. The toll not being in a race car took on him when he ventured into broadcasting, which is why he still loves putting the helmet on and racing even now. Plus, his views on the future of supercars. We'll begin with the early years. The memories are as vivid now and it's so cool that he's keen to share them with you all. Jeez, I hope you're ready for this, mate. <laughs> <laughs> this could go pear-shaped really easy. And uh, and you've known me for plenty of years, as long as I've known you. And, uh, yeah, no, look, it's uh, it's great to be on. Uh, Australia's biggest podcast. Jeez, I feel a little bit odd. And, and, and funnily enough, a little bit nervous too about this because... Uh, Why? Well, I really haven't done the life and times of yours, truly. Um, you know, I, I sort of... As out there as I am, I'm still a little bit reserved in a lot of things and I don't go around pumping up my own tyres that much, to be quite honest. And uh, I've never really – a lot of people have asked me about doing books and all this sort of thing. I'm going, yeah, uh, it's – yeah, maybe, maybe not, you know. So this is the first time I've actually done anything like this. So um, it's going to be in- it's going to be interesting for me as well, looking back in the revision mirror. <laughs> Well, mate, there's there's so much to cover, Russell, in in so many ways. So tell me about those early years. What are the early influences? Well, well, uh, to get back to the original one, I grew up in Adelaide. Um, I came out to Australia from England when I was three. Um, people could say, actually, only the other day, because um, I did a charity thing for uh, breast cancer on the weekend, and uh, someone asked me there, I... Oh, oh, how long have you been out from New Zealand? <laughs> I think it's a combination of the Pommy and Australian accent, you know. But uh, my, my dad was a motor mechanic in England. He, he came out. He was one of the 10-pound Poms. And uh, we, we rolled straight. So I think you had two options. I think it was, I think it was Adelaide and um, I think Adelaide and WA. But anyway, we, we took Adelaide and uh, grew up around cars. My father owned a service station, a Shell service station actually in Port Adelaide. And uh, that, that was probably the, a lot of the influence in getting because uh, my, my mother died of breast cancer when I was very young and uh, it was just the two of us. So just the two of us growing together in a three-bedroom house in Adelaide, very modest. He was a dead-set hard worker. It was one of those where service stations actually lived up to his name, service, you know, put the petrol in, someone comes out, fills your car up, pumps your tyres up, washes your screen, you know, the whole bit. So um, so I grew up around that, used to cycle from school in the afternoon into Port Adelaide um, and then straight into 
taking sump plugs out and working on cars and that sort of thing. So I think that's where the whole, you know, uh, love of, of motoring and motorsport and uh, we we got into karting very young as well when I was 12 years old because there was an old relic of a cart in a crash repair that was out the back of Dad's service station. He used to rent it to this guy that used to fix cars, uh, a panel, and it was hanging up on a on a nail on the on the side, this frame of a A-frame go-kart. So um, we kept eyeing it off and eyeing it off, and Dad said, oh, do you want to give it a go? And so we dragged it off the wall and bought a McCulloch chainsaw engine and whacked that on, and that was the that was the engine of the day. And uh, and that's how it all started. But, yeah, it was um, – uh, that, I think that's where the whole passion for the, the whole motorsport thing kicked off was uh, was back in those early days of kicking around cars and and uh, working on them. What was the local track? Was it Wyala that you used to go to, and did it click straight away for you, Russell? Actually, I started racing motocross when I was when I was about ten, and I only did three years of that. And I found out two things: number one, I probably wasn't very good. Number two is it hurts when you come off <laughs> big time. So I think that's what there was a transition over to go-kart racing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there was, we had some great tracks. Uh, there was Bolivar, which, which was the biggest one that was on your way out to Adelaide National Raceway. Uh, Brossa Valley, which is r- right in the middle of Brossa Valley, this beautiful scenic track. It was a, a, a stunning place. Um, uh, then they had another one called the Pines, which was out there um, uh, up in the hills of uh, Lobenthal. Um, and uh, yeah, so there was. They probably had. We probably had four or five. Wyala, it was obviously one as well. Uh, Port Augusta. Um, so we had some really cool tracks around the place, and I think that's what the attraction was in karting because you had in your own state you had so many, so many cool places to go to. And then later on in the years, when I started doing it pretty serious, because uh, I ended up owning a kart shop, and uh, uh, we used to go all around Australia. You know, WA, Perth. Toowoomba and all these sort of places. So it was a great time. I, I, I think karting was, was probably one of the best eras of my motorsport career ever, I think. It was just, it was just so enjoyable, so competitive, and I, I did it from when I was 12 to my late teens. So it was, a, it was a big innings. Were you always sort of fiercely competitive? And, you know, later on you'd get that great reputation for being – you know, you know, tough and un- uncompromising and things like that. But did that nature come out very early in you in, in the karting phase? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I think because of the uh, – and I always say – and I was, I was very interested because I'm a massive, as you know, a massive Ayrton Senna fan. I think he was the all-time most complete and best race driver. Um, and I remember during his um, documentary that he did – he was asked a question, what made a sport did you enjoy the most? And he sat back and thought about it and went, go-karts. Mm. You know, he said, go-kart racing. He's, and his, his answer, which I reckon was spot on, is the most pure form of motor racing. And I think what he means by that is it's, it's raw. Uh, it's a fairly basic sort of machine. Um, pretty well anyone could buy or, or have the same equipment as what you got. So it came down to the driver. You know, the guy behind the wheel and those two pedals, that's what it actually came down to. And I felt exactly the same. It was, it was a, a form of motorsport where it was fiercely competitive. Um, you had to push the limits because you didn't have an equipment advantage. It was, it was purely down to the driver. And, uh, and, and the competition side of it as far as wheel-to-wheel racing uh, to a point where I actually got disappointed as I started moving up the pyramid and up the food chain of motor racing, that I found the challenge is still the same and, and probably more so, but when you got down to the raw form, the actual wheel-to-wheel racing, karting was the best, you know, in, in, and, and I missed that as you went up. I found that got less and less, and it was more about other factors, um, just different, but when you come down to it, it, it was such good years and, and made a lot of friendships along the way. And, and, but more importantly, it gave you a gauge where whether you had it or not, whether you had the, the it factor and, and you were going to either pursue it as a motorsport, as a, you know, as a hobby, or you're going to get serious and have a big swing at it and then dedicate your life to it. And, uh, and I was fiercely competitive and, and it went, all the way to 
I ended up owning a cart shop with with a partner of mine, Kyle Moat, who who was in that era very renowned for his engine tuning capabilities, and and uh, we ended up manufacturing our own cart. And Drew Price, who uh, who's still in the cart business uh, to this day, manufacturing the Demon carts, uh, he was our main competition, or, or you know he was the benchmark and. And one year, we, we ended up taking out most of the championships that year. We, I think we built 250 chassis in one year. Amazing. There's a little workshop up at uh, just outside of uh, Adelaide CBD. And, uh, you know, with the three of us working there, we're all hands-on. And uh, I, I, I think um, you sort of look back at those sort of things, Greg, and, and you go, you take it for granted a bit. Those sort of days, you were just living day to day, week to week, and it was just all about the kart racing and running, trying to run a business in my early, te- my late teens, and you know it was it, there was a lot going on, and you never thought about later on how many life lessons that taught you along the way, as far as you know um, how to bring out the best in yourself, how to you know manage certain situations, and uh, I learned a lot from those years, you know, not just on the track but off the track as well. Yeah. Um, but but it's in that during that period that I had to make a call. You know, the call came was, do I just do carts for the rest of my life and run a cart shop and, you know, and end up just doing that? Or do I have a swing at, see if I can actually get somewhere? And I think out of all of it, and I was lucky enough, well, not lucky enough, it was through hard work and um, that I won quite a few cart championships and, had to make the call, right? Do I do I do I just try and keep heading up the ladder? And and I made the call. I said, okay, let's do this. I I, I started racing Formula Fords, and with all things like that, once it, once I start going into another form of motorsport, the karting side of it suffered a little bit. And and uh, my my business partner at that stage said, look, you know, you got to make a decision. Are we we going to do this as a business, or are you going to go off and try and be a race driver? full time and and uh, it came down to the decision I said well look I want to give this a go I reckon I can do it and so I ended up selling my half of the business out and then started doing Formula Fords full time but it was a hard decision because you've got a business here that's earning good money and it mm. was your livelihood uh, or do I just throw all that away or was, there was 10 years of, of you know of, of work into it you know and, uh, and then flow into something else but anyway I, I made that call and that was sort of like in the late 80s and in the end I think it was the right decision but it, it, it was made it was a tough call it was like okay we're just about to jump on this train here we go <laughs> big call but it, it would pay dividends taking that that risk Russell so the two things out of that, that comment that I love is I love the fact that like Senna the purity of karting is something that really appealed to you and clearly that you know you've been very savvy in a commercial sense in your racing life and there were some great early lessons that that karting business clearly helped you with i want to just before we move into to formula ford and and the car racing phase if you will you talked about it being um you know uh, karting a place less likely compared to motocross to get an injury but you did lose a finger russell didn't you <laughs> what what happened it was um it was Oran park uh i'm just trying to think what year i think it was 80 uh because it was just before I started racing full-time in Formula 4. I think it was 87. And there was a CIK, an international meeting at Oran Park. That's when they used to use just turn off, just after the bridge at Oran Park, they used to turn off. Great old track. Straight down the hill. It was magnificent. And they had quite a few international events there, which I used to go to all of them and be part of the Australia team. They used to bring out all the greats. You know, there's Giancarlo Fisichella and... Uh, Max Pappas was an awesome driver. He actually won the CIK event there a couple of times. Um, so they, they used to bring the Italian, European teams and uh, all the teams from, um, from the manufacturers used to come over here, UK as well, and uh, all assemble at Oran Park and have this massive international meeting. It was just, it was just so good to be part of all that. And, um, yeah, so we were uh, – that was at that meet. It, we actually had a meeting just before that, which was a test meeting before we rolled into the CIK. Um, and, uh, yeah, I ended up coming up over the bridge and typical of me, um, tried a manoeuvre that was probably a little bit iffy and run out of real estate. Anyway, I got tangled up with, uh, with this other guy, flipped over, and I mustn't have let go of the steering wheel and 
it was actually dragging up over the bridge on the steering wheel and I must have just, you know, fighting it to the death, holding it up. When you're upside down, you probably, it should have been lights out, but no, I had to hang on for a bit longer and, and I ripped it off. Anyway, I didn't actually know because I had the, had the glove on um, and I thought, oh, damn it, you know. So I, I go to pick the card up and see if I can get restarted and the seat was all broken and flipped it over. I go, no, this is no good. Anyway, dragged the card off and I go, geez, the hand's a bit sore. <laughs> I lifted up my glove and, and the index figure there just flopped over. And I'm going, oh, this is all bad. And then, and then there was obviously a fair bit of claret kicking around. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this, this is no good. Anyway, I pulled my glove off and had a look and then I'm going, oh, then I started to get a bit dizzy. Going, this, is, this is all bad. Uh, but, yeah, long, long and short of it is we, they stopped the race and medic, medics come over and going, oh, Jesus, this is, you know. And then they then – the funny enough, the thing about it is then, then there was a search on because some of the other drivers go and they're going, well, see if we can find the finger because we might be able to stitch it back on. So, that, so you had all these drivers and mechanics and they're all going around on the top of the, top of the hill there at um, on the bridge on Oran Park looking for my finger, you know. No one, no one actually ever found it. I think, I think it grew into a tree or something. I don't know. It's probably under a housing house at the moment there. And, uh, yeah, so that was... That was uh, Strapped it all up and uh, off to the local hospital at Norellan there, I think. And, um, yeah, we, we ended up in Sydney Hospital, driving into Sydney and getting it fixed up. But the thing is, uh, we, the week after that race was um, a race called the Hong Kong Grand Prix. Yeah. And uh, it was a massive race they used to have at the basketball courts right in the centre of Hong Kong. And uh, I got invited um, with Swiss Hutless to race there. So uh, that was the week after it. And... I was in the hospital for two days and um, they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, try and keep as much as you can. Let's stitch it up and because I want to make it, still make it to this race. And anyway, they, they looked at it and said, yeah, going anywhere. Like, yeah, this is going to be months. I said, yeah, yeah, okay, typical. You know, when you're young, you're full of beans. They, uh, they stitched it up and, and uh, got released from the hospital, signed myself out and uh, the um, – mechanic I was with uh, who helped me with the carts he said we're still going to go I said damn right we are <laughs> we strapped it up jumped on a burner went over there and it hurt like hell and I was I, was, I got a few painkillers and stuff and uh, we ended up making um, a splint for it because it kept flopping around on the steering wheel because it's a really bumpy track and my little finger kept bouncing up and down and so we actually got some lollipop sticks and some race tape and I made a little splint out of it and <laughs> anyway in uh, Ended up uh, in the semi-finals. I got fifth in the semi-finals. It was pouring down with rain, and uh, yeah, we damn near nearly got a podium. So it was, it was a really good. Uh, it was again life experiences, and um, yeah, it was it was a wild one that one. But funny enough, and it's it's now a bit of a a bit of a thing with me the the missing finger. Most definitely. Again, not many people know what happened about it. No. Cool story. Hey, I'm glad you bring up the fact that you were competing overseas there because, you know, you, you'd won junior and senior titles in karting in Australia. Before you embarked on this, uh, you know, the good the good race drivers have this rite of passage going through Formula Ford in, in many respects. It's a common denominator on every CV. But I think it's important to point out with you, Russell, not, not every young racer has experience in karts internationally, but you did, didn't you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and uh, I had, a, I had, a, I used to race for the Swiss Hutless, who was one of the big. There was Carly Kart, Swiss Hutless, Techno. They were sort of like the big international brands that came to Australia. And uh, I was part of the Swiss Hutless team towards the end of my career in in karting. Um, and uh, the importer into Australia said, "Oh, look, Swiss Hutless have." have seen what you do over here and um, they wanted to see know if you're interested in doing a couple of rounds of the European Championship Mega. and I said hell yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. On, on we go and uh, so we, we went over there for about three months and my teammate was Mika Salo he Mega. was the he was the European uh, Swiss Hutless driver and and so we we went over there and um, uh, I think I was oh I must have been 16 because I was the only one that had a license because we went over there and we went to the factory for a week and they fitted out with a car and, and it was phenomenal. I, look, karting, and I'm presuming it's just as big, but that then it was mind blowing because, you know, in Australia you got one car, one engine and you go racing, you know, and, and we went over there and went to the factory and they said, oh, hi, Mr. Ingo, you know, do the intros and, oh, and I'm walking around going, how good is this? This is like a, a car factory, you know, where they manufacture all the carts and, I said, oh, here's your carts for the next two rounds of 
the Italian um, or the European Championship. And there was like 15 chassis lined up. And I'm going, they had my name on it. I'm going, are you serious? It was like NASCAR, you know, where they got awesome. Just all lined up, engines ready to go. And we went out testing. And uh, I think Fano was the, was the first round of the championship there. And, and we got there and uh, because I, I was the only one that had a license, I drove the truck there because they said, here's your truck. Uh, Mick is going with you. Uh, there's all your carts we'll put in the back loaded you drive there and we'll meet you there so we're driving around wrong side of the road like here's, here's this kid from Adelaide like just just absolute bogan you know still got the still got the mullet flowing out the back and that and we're in the middle of Italy driving for a, one of the world's biggest cart teams you know and 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 not knowing at that stage, sitting next to a, what will be a Formula One driver, you know, and here we are. We're, we're rocking down there and rocking through Italy and going, how good's this? And uh, rolled up to these tracks. And like I said, we did two rounds of the European Championships and I got 10th uh, Fano. And it was, but it was out of control. Like it was just the level. And, and I liken it to going probably from clubby racing to going to Formula One. That's what it was like. Such a step. Oh, yeah. transporters and just, just the magnitude. But then you look at all the drivers and probably at that stage, all the drivers that ran into the night of Formula One drivers um, that ended up in Formula One in the 90s were there. They would have been racing carts, you know, all, all the massive names, um, you know, more Bedellis and just just massive. And, and it, was just, um, it was just another level. But again, it was... All these, all these experiences coming at, at me, you know, and all this stuff flowing in that I'm going, yeah, okay. And again, you, t- you didn't think about it then because you were just flat out doing it, you know. And then now I think back, Jesus, that was pretty cool. Mega. Not too many. When you look at all the drivers that you think about, even European drivers, but definitely in Australia, that, that didn't do that or didn't have the opportunity to do it. And I look back and go, man, that's, that's so cool. But... No, I knew about it. I knew about it. And, you know, the guys that helped me out, the mechanics that gave their time up, they came with me and uh, they knew about it. But, uh, but the scope of it was unbelievable. But, but again, it, was, it kept feeding the, the beast as far as competition and levels. You know what I mean? Because I think any sport is, is I find it's, it's just all levels, you know, and you keep thinking the level is here, right? You think, all I have to do is get here and I'm there. And then all of a sudden, you go to a place like Europe and with European racing and you think, I'm only halfway there. That's not the level. The level's just been, you know, is way over my head. So then you've got another target and you have to, you know, get in there and do it. And I, and I think with all those experiences combined, that's what, when I eventually ended up back in Australia, that's how I, I believe my level was so high is because, you know, I was pushed so hard earlier on, you know, well, I saw what the goal was, you know, and, and saw what, what I had to do to make it. And there was, you know, you come out of it now. And then there's a couple of times I sort of went, oh, you know, I think I can do it. But then once I got into Mark's, there was a couple of little times there where I thought, man, I'm not sure whether I can, I can, I can get to where I'm not sure I can compete with these dudes. Mm. But again, that's the, I think that's part of the challenge of, of, of growing is, is going, nah, nah, get that out of your head. Rightio. If he can do it, I can do it. He's got two arms and two legs, you know? So it's just, I've just got to figure out a way to do it, you know? And, and that's why I rate cuts so highly because all those experiences gave me the tools I needed to know that I can do it. You know what I mean? Because I yep. think that's what it's about. And the raw form of motorsport teaches you that, you know, yep. and I think it'd be the same with motorbike riders when they're coming through those, those lower categories, you know, that I, I think you're challenged harder then than you are later on down the road. Right. I love it, Russell. I love the simplicity of the way you've broken it down and just the importance you've placed on, on karting there for people that are younger listeners. Um, we'll come back to this, this European chapter because I think it's something that is – uh, not widely spoken about, but you had a big swing at it. And that's that's an important um, thing that I'd like to cover with you. Firstly, Formula Ford, though, am I right in saying in the late 80s there that in, in only your second meeting in Australia, which may have been at the Australian Grand Prix, in fact, you, you finished in the top three. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was I, – I found Formula Ford's 
it was hard because a cart is like a little Formula One car, very responsive and it's agile. And then you got into the Formula Ford and all of a sudden you got a gear shift and, and it's a little bit lazier. Um, and I had to, I actually had to wind myself back a little bit, you know, and, and go, right, okay, I've just got to figure out how this thing works because I can't throw it around like I did with a cart. You know, I've got to be a bit, bit kinder to it, you know. So once I got my head around that, which it took me a meeting to do, and again, the, the, I suppose the competitive side came out and I, I got to nail this fast because if I knew how expensive it was too. And that was the other part about it. I mean, What were you spending back then in terms of budgets for a year for driving to Europe and stuff like that? Oh, uh, well, even... Oh, geez, you're going to laugh, but I remember when um, the 90, in 1990, the year what I won the Formula back Ford then Championship, in terms of budgets for the Coffee Ford sponsorship, who, and stuff like who that. Mark Larkham had the year before in 89, hmm. uh, I think it was 60 grand. So we did the whole, whole year, and I was doing it from Adelaide as well, from basically from my backyard at home. Uh, so, yeah, we did the whole year and won the year on 60 grand. So it was – that's not including the car, of course, yeah. but, uh, yeah, so – that's pretty cheap. <laughs> you know, go go karting for that now. But but I think I think when I started and did those few races in '88 and and got a result, like I said, I thought. Oh, but I knew I had to get a result if I'm going to try and because I I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. Like I said, it was just me and Dad growing up in Adelaide. Just very he, he did more for me than I probably appreciate. You know, as most fathers do. And uh, but I knew if I was going to succeed, there was only one way I was going to do it. Um, because I didn't know the system. I didn't know the people. Um, I probably wasn't the most promotable person in the world either because, you know, like I said, I was just a bogan from Adelaide, you know. So um, I knew the only way I was going to get through is win races. It's the only way you're going to do it. If I win races, I'll keep going, you know. So I thought I have, I'm not going to do this whole, oh, look, I'll, I'll take a year to get my eye in. Mm. I'll get my eye in after the first race, <laughs> you know, and then because I had to. And, and that's why that, that those few races were so important and getting that, that first podium was so important because all of a sudden people went, who's this dude? Mm. Hang on, he's just, he just come on and, and kick the butts of some of the best Formula 4 drivers kicking around and, oh, okay, maybe we should pay attention. And then from that, that rolled on to a deal with, uh, with Van Diemen who, who, who supplied cars for, well, a subsidised car for 89 and then a free car for 90 yep. uh, through um, Steve Knott. From Van, the late Steve, not um, from Van Dam in Australia, and that helped me. But again, it wasn't it wasn't later in Formula Ford that started. It was those two races, mm. and it's, it's, it always amazes me with sport, you know. And, and you can look at any any um, you know story that of successful people in sport. It's normally just one thing, pivotal moment, Russell kind of thing. Yeah, it is because and that's and that's and that's what changes. So that's what I was saying. But I knew that. You know, mm. I knew, I knew I, I, I had to make an impact straight away. Otherwise, mm. she was back to servicing cars. You know, so it's a pretty good incentive. I Very. can tell you. So how were you? How were you making ends meet? What were you doing to sort of fund all this and keep it all going? Mate, any anything I could. There was one thing I was good at: is wheeling and dealing. <laughs> and and uh, you still are. <laughs> you I was that. buying and selling cars. <laughs> I was I was still working on cars. Anything I could do. Um, again, the cart, the cart shop before I got rid of that helped me fund it uh, along the way. Um, but until I got that first sponsorship deal uh, in 90, um, end of 88 and 89, I pretty well funded myself. And uh, uh, look, Dad helped me out along the way with it as well, but um, as much as he could. But, um, yeah, it was – but we did it. Hey, we did it modestly. I was working on the car. Had a mate of mine, Bobby Smith, who was working on the cars for me, and he did it for free. You know, so um, we we were just we were just had living expenses, and that was about it. And whatever parts, and and fortunately enough, along and uh, there, there was people that would supply stuff to us, and I started getting the odd deal here and there. And and it's funny when you look at the two sponsors. I think one of the sponsors we had on the '89 Van Diemen was Caltex. Yep. Funny enough, I went on to win a championship with, with them. Yeah, 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 and then it then it turned on to Castrol in the in the later on in '90. So it was yeah, it's, it's funny how they've they've followed me out throughout. But uh, mate, it was tough though. But again, I, Greg, I think it's it really reinforces the fact that when you got to fight for something and it's not handed to you, mm. um, mate, I think that's what what brings out the best in someone. You know, yep. um, it's it's not always 
the good times is the bad times that brings out anyone's character and will, and will mm. to survive, you know, mm. and the hunger. Exactly right, you know, and, and, and I wouldn't have done it any other way. I, I reckon if it was handed to me too easy, I wouldn't have turned the, – the whole story of my career wouldn't have turned out how it did, you know. Mm. So I think it's an important lesson for anyone, you know. Most definitely. You've detailed there about, uh, crucially, winning the, the 1990 Driver to Europe title, which would give you an opportunity to go back overseas. But I just want to touch on, if we can, the Formula Ford series uh, at that stage would venture to Bathurst, which would feature prominently in your life, Russell. My question's a little bit loaded here, okay, because because years later, um, I, Brett Crusher-Murray, who's been a publicist and around for a long time, says he can vividly recall going on a road trip with you from, from Sydney to Bathurst over the Blue Mountains, and he said the moment Russell could see the Mount Panorama sign and see the track for the first time, you you changed. It was it was like white line fever. It had a huge impact on you, mate, didn't it? Even from those first early meetings with Formula Ford. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and it's funny, I, I don't I don't get to no one or, or, or any situation doesn't bother me too much. I'm, I'm pretty strong-willed, as, as you know. Yes. Uh, or not that I show sometimes. Um, but it, it's funny that it's the Bathurst track alone, I've never experienced this before when you roll up to a place for the first time. It's usually all you want to do is get there, jump in the car, get out of the first practice session and, and start start work, you know. And uh, um, and it shows you the power and the aura of, of the Bathurst circuit is that I remember going there, uh, I think it happened both times, I think in 80, 88 and 89 when I first first went there for the first time in Formula Ford. Um, uh we were driving in the track and started to get closer and started driving up that, you know, that bit of a hill on the way to where the, the entrance is and that sort of thing. And I started getting nosebleeds. Really? Yeah. And I, and I thought, what? It's a bit odd. And the first time it happened, I thought, ah, oh, maybe just, I don't know, maybe it's a height. <laughs> Ampleade's pretty low, you know, so maybe, maybe, maybe it's a height. I don't know. So I, I didn't pay. But the second time I went, this is really odd. And, you know, like I said, my mechanic um, uh, Bobby looked at me and go, what's going on with you? you got some sort of disease. I said, oh, I'm fucking fine. No, <laughs> never, never had it before. Never, never at any stage, but when someone smacked me in the nose a few times, I've got a few nosebleeds. But apart from that, uh, yeah, and all it was was just you start ang- the anxiety, uh, nerves as well, especially when you go to a place like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, again, it was one of those things, young guy, um, you know, trying to, trying to make a career, realise the – enormity of where we're about to go. Yes, you're not in the touring car race, but mm. you're in front of all of those guys, the importance of doing well, winning, you know, and, uh, yeah, just bloody goddamn nosebleed. Like, I can't believe it. <laughs> but but it, it, it obviously it, it stopped after that, but uh, it stopped, but the nerves were still there. I remember right mm. through to the Castrol days of, of rolling rolling in there and uh, the first days with Larry, every time you'd, you'd roll into Bathurst and it was just, man, you just, your heart, your heart would just go up to about 200 beats a minute and it, you, you feel the nerves and, and only that place, only that mm. one place. So, um, you know, it's not like you'd roll into Winton or anywhere like that again, but, but that, <laughs> that, that joint there, man, it's, um, yeah, it's it quite extraordinary really. The world's fastest go-kart is the all-electric Daymax C5 Blast. It's made in Canada and it can go from 0 to 60 miles per hour in just 1.5 seconds. The next four to five years would focus very heavily on Europe, but your wife, who's an amazing photographer and people can can follow her on Instagram, will cover a little bit of her um, stuff in Europe and some of the people she worked and photographed um, over there in a moment. But she shared a photo recently, Russell, uh, of you, VL Commodore, Bob Forbes, Kevin Bartlett, 1990. What was that like? Well, Wally Story, who was the engineer um, for the GIA team and Bob Forbes, um, he was a big Formula Ford advocate. Uh, race himself. I, he, mm. Wally Story was a, a, a fast racer in his own, work on his own gear, used to make his own Formula Ford. And uh, he, he, um, he really knew what it took to be competitive in Formula Ford. Mm. And uh, he, um, 
he really appreciated that. And I, I think after winning the championship, he was, um, he, he said, oh, yeah, and, and, and I used to look to him for advice on a lot of things and set up, and he'd freely give it, you know, which was mm. great because we didn't know everything about it because going from carts to former Ford, something with suspension and all of a sudden you've got all these different dynamics going on and going, oh, Jesus, this, this is a bit harder than a, than a go-kart to set up. And so he, um, he gave us a lot of advice on it. So I think he knew... And and he pushed my barrow to getting that drive, um, and then you know it was rolled up there, and uh, it was such such a deep end from going from Formula Ford because the the old VL Commodores look it was a great era of racing, but trust me they weren't they were the best things to drive because they had, they had that and I'm talking across the board here not just a VL yes. Commodore I mean I'm sure yeah. all the makes were the same but they had that bird bar thing on the back no aero <laughs> the things were loose as hell like had a, had a ton of horsepower you're sitting in this seat and the big old gear shift H pattern uh, it was it was massive and then you go to Bathurst so you got no experience um, in, a, in a touring car uh, you're used to cars that actually handle this thing did neither and uh, and loads of power, uh, yeah, loads of power. <laughs> one of the most daunting racetracks in the world, you know. What could go wrong? So it was, but it was great. He he really helped me, you know, until I, to get up to pace. And mm. obviously, with with um, you know, had KB there, and and it was in the end, it ended up going. We we went pretty well, you know. We, mm. but it was, um, it also made up my mind to that race there in particular and totally loved it. And a lot of people don't, didn't realise the race Bathurst mm. because I sort of only did that one race and then went overseas. They thought my touring car career started in 95 when I, when I did the co-drive with Larry. But yeah. it actually, not too many people know about the 90 Bathurst. It sort of flew under the radar a bit, you know, because obviously there was, you know, all the legends were there and we flew mm. under, you know, we, we were just part of, the, part of the show rather than being the show. And, uh, yeah, so it was um, – but that also made up my mind that I wanted to go overseas mm. because uh, with no disrespect to, <laughs> to that era of racing and that, I, I, I was going from proper race cars uh, to the touring cars, which were a hybrid of a road car and a race car. Mm. And, and I enjoyed it, but I thought – I'm not ready for this yet. <laughs> you know, mm. like, like, yeah, the, the, I really enjoyed it. The race was great. Brought it home. Every, everything was good. Um, but um, I was still following the, the Formula One dream. dream. So that, that sort of reaffirmed my position that I want to go overseas and chase this. You know, I, I don't want to stay here and race steering cars. You know, so that was, uh, that was the call I made and that was sort of like really the stamp then. I went, yep, okay. I definitely know what I want to do now. And typical you, your first year in British Formula Ford, which is seen as the benchmark, you know you have to make an impact straight away. It can't be the, I'll spend this year learning and then I'll be right in in 92. Russell, am I right in saying you went within five points of winning the title or something in that first year, didn't you? Yeah, in 90, yeah. And it was, again, I liken it to the karting when I went to Europe. Hmm. Um, and did those couple of rounds of the European Championship, it was the same. Going from Formula Ford in Australia, which was very competitive, and but then I went to England and it was like, well, Jesus. <laughs> like, it, it, was, it was out of control because you've got to remember, over there, everyone's trying to be a Formula 1 star that's in Formula Ford, um, and, and you've got the best in the world uh, all, all, all sort of congregating to – to UK because UK was the hub. Mm. If you wanted to make it Formula One, you had to go to UK and do Formula Ford, F3, you know, and then and then you could start going out to the series in Europe. Like uh, Formula 3000 then was the, the category below F1, but mm-hmm. they had a lot of European. But UK was it. So you got all these mad uh, Italians and French and Spanish and uh, American and they all, they're all there. Every country's represented racing Formula Ford, knowing this is where I kick off, trying to get to Formula One. And they're all as mad as cut snakes, and they're all trying to kill you. And so rocking over to the atmosphere, and there wasn't just one. You know, you, you know how you get a championship, and there's probably a handful of guys. You really know that's my competition. This was the whole field, you know. And, and so that first year, and, and you're right, I mean, we had – I went over there. I sold 
everything we had. So I had uh, a Ford panel van, my trailer. Um, I had a, a speedboat that I built and never even got to use because I, I, I really like water skiing. We used to go up Murray Bridge all the time, water skiing. Um, never even used a thing. I sold every single thing I had, my 90 Formula Ford, um, everything I owned, cashed in my – I took out uh, – I don't know why I was captain safety back then, but I, I somehow got conned into an AMP life insurance thing as well when I was um, doing my apprenticeship as a motor mechanic. And uh, I cashed that in. And it, it, so we're talking everything, Greg. All on the line, Russell, all on the line. I had a bag, a toolbox, and we, I remember this distinctly. We rolled up at Heathrow Airport, right, beginning of 1990. Heathrow Airport with a uh, – sorry, beginning of 91 with a toolbox, my mechanic, um, and that was it. We had the bags, um, had enough cash in the bank to pay for the first year, and that, and that was it. And we're standing there going – Rightio, what do we do now? Okay, well, we we got to find Van Diemen because we've done a deal with them. Van Diemen said, okay, for winning the championship in Australia, we'll give you a car and, and our factory workshop to work out if we run the factory Duckham's team. But you have to come up with the, with the budget to run it for the year. Okay, let's do it. So we went out there. Um, we grabbed a car went up to uh, Thetford, um, up to Van Diemen's, uh, to the main factory. Uh, nowhere to stay. We, we bunked out with a couple of mechanics for a couple of days, uh, found a place to rent, uh, just a little dog box. So there was about five of us living in there, just sharing, sharing the joint. And, uh, and that was it. So we rolled up there. Literally, that's what we had, a toolbox and a couple of suitcases. Nice. And that was, that was our whole possessions. Everything else had gone. Um, Every single dollar that I had was going to pay for that year. Um, I picked up a local sponsor uh, in Bradshaw Vehicles who make electric vehicles or those little buggies you see around the airports. They, got lo- they were made locally at uh, Peterborough. So I picked them up. And I think that was for like for, I think he was like 5,000 pounds or something. And, uh, and he gave us a little van to drive around in. Um, and that was it. That was the first year in 91. So again, it comes down to this thing. This is it. I've just sold up every possession I own. I'm plugging everything into this. If I don't do any good and it's over in a year, I go back to Adelaide, back living with Dad and back repairing cars. You know, that's that's what the life's going to turn out to be. So I thought, okay, well, best we get into this. They talk about risk-reward, Russell. That really was all on the line. And you've always been streetwise, mate. You correct me if I haven't quite got the year right or the story right. But I want to say the Duckham's team, the factory team, there was a wall between your your factory and theirs. And and I think Julia might have been just the right size to sort of sneak through the air conditioning duct and have a bit of a look, see what the factory team were up to in order to give you the latest info. It's something like that, isn't it? You, you did everything you possibly uh, could. Yeah, well, look, well, look, we were, yeah. I think it's safe enough to talk about this now. I don't think I'm going to go I think Ralph Furman, who owns Van Diemen, he's moved on. So, um, But we, uh, yeah, look, the factory team ran off a, a building right next to where the manufacturing was. So yep. all the Van Diemen's, the Formula Ford 2000s, Formula Fords, every, everything they made, um, they distributed throughout the world, was made next door. And uh, there was. There was a brick wall up. And there was a little... Um, sort of like a, a heating vent um, down, the, down the base where, they, where we worked on the cars. So uh, they were a normal setup where you had your cars in little bays, you know. Yep. And uh, we had the keys to the joint, of course, because we used to go back there at night at working. And, and, and there was a massive rivalry between ourselves and the factory Duckham's team. And, and the guy Putty, they called him, <laughs> who ran the Duckham's team, because he suddenly realised, I've got a bit of a challenger on my hands. Because the Duckham teams won every year. Duckham team. If you got the factory Duckham's drive, it was it was like getting it was like being the Mercedes of Formula One. That was the drive to get. And Mark Goosens was was the driver then, and he was a factory back Marlborough driver. And uh, and we, and we were we were so bucks down, and we we were given the championship a nudge. Like we bloody near were winning this thing, much to their 
domain. Ralph Furman, who owned Van Diemen, loved it because there was this real push that we were pushing ourselves so hard that it pushed us ahead of everyone else and all the other factory teams. So, yeah, there was this little open event and, and we were running out of money fast. So anything we could save, um, brake pads, discs, or that sort of thing. So what we used to do is uh, I'd... I tried to send Julie through once and she got a bit spooked. So I ended up having to go through because I was a lot skinnier back then. And, uh, yeah, so Russell Atkinson, who was my mechanic, he, he used to be the lookout. And so once the factory cleared out, we used to, I used to crawl through this hole in there, go into the factory, and then that way we could buddy, have a look around, scout around, pitch the brake pads, because <laughs> there was just thousands of them. So we used to rearrange everything so they wouldn't feel as missing. So, and then we'd have, a, we'd have a little stash hole in that. So, you know, brake fluids and any, anything we could get, any consumables, right, that we could get through there, we'd get. And this, and this went, went on all year. I think Ralph Furman knew what we were up to. <laughs> because we were doing all right, I think he let it go because they must have been doing stock takes and going, Jesus Christ, we're going through a lot of brakes and brake discs and brake pads here. Like uh, but yeah, so we used to get all that out and but we had hey, we had to. Because to compete where they were, you know, you had to keep throwing parts at it, you know, had to keep throwing the best, you know, best you could, brakes, discs, you know, fluids, engines, you know. So uh, mate, it's what you had to do. If it didn't do that, we weren't going to be competitive. So just did it, you know, and, and, and mate, that, that was only part of it. It's probably some I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it was that Adelaide thing, you know, Adelaide boy growing up. Yeah, just do what you had to do, mate. But, but you know, we got, only just missed out on the championship in the first year that year. And, uh, and but, but that's what led on to other things in the F3 deal. And But that, that was a big year. But, again, it was... Let's just do this. Let's just do it, you know. <laughs> yeah, so be it. Exactly. You would win it in 93 with a dominant year, Russell. We'll get to that shortly. But you've, you've, um, you've uh, alluded to it there a moment ago because a, a window opens to, to get from England into Europe to another class of racing as well. And it, and it exposed you to some of the great tracks of Europe, some big names that were around then too. And this is not sort of widely known this aspect of your career is it no no it was um it was uh an interesting sort of period where i sort of was jumping around a little bit and i i, I thought i'd be doing another year of of um of formula ford but in 92 i, I met a um well through van diemen's i got introduced to um a german team who used to deal with with uh, ralph Furman and van diemen and uh horse schubel and uh he was a uh, a factory or semi-supported Opal team. They used to run the Jägermeister cars, um, those orange Jägermeister cars in the awesome. DTM. When DTM was like mm. the in, in a bit, that was mm. that was the category in the world, uh, just down from F1. And um, yeah, so we we ended up striking a deal. I went over and did a test and striking a deal to run F3 in, in the German Formula Three Championship. And the German Formula Three Championship was just awesome, you know mm. and. Um, you know Sasha Masson, and uh, there was there was some serious serious competitors in it, and uh, and I think the German F3 Championship was was widely regarded as a place to go if um, again if you're still trying to make do the Formula One thing, but also for DTM or sports car racing in particular mm. in Europe, which was huge, um, which Mark Webber raced, you know uh, that. Um, the German F3 Championship was a great breeding ground for those avenues. So I thought, man, I can't pass this up. I would mm. love to do, do another year of, of Formula Ford and try and win it, but but um, it was too good an opportunity. And um, it was a big jump. Never driven an F3 car before. Uh, I drove a, a Vauxhall Lotus a couple of times for Martin Donnelly when I was in England in 91. But mm -hmm. it, it was a massive move. And, uh, again, a country change. So we've been a couple of years in England. Uh, and then to head over to Germany, which is just that, uh, and it's alone, you know. So you go to a country, uh, we drove over there, but took the ferry across, took whatever we had left, um, parked up. We got a little apartment that got organised for us, which was under a house of this old couple in Germany. Couldn't speak English. So no one in the town hardly spoke English. So you got a different country, different culture, um, it was all cool. We, we just relished in it, though, because we, I, I like that sort of stuff. Julia mm. loved it, you know, and, and, 
And she shouldn't be underestimated in this whole deal because she's the one that had to do the crappy jobs in England and work in pubs and all the rest of it to keep us, keep us in food. Mm. And uh, um, <laughs> I'll tell you a quick one because we yep. talk about graft yep. and corruption, but she, used to, she was used to work in one of those little pubs in, uh, in England, one of those quaint little low-ceiling pubs, you know, very cool. Beautiful. And, old and that's where everyone, yep. old school, you know, yep. had, had have five-pound schnitzel nights and stuff like that. So she was a waitress in one of those for most of the year. And, uh, and because, I mean, we just used to eat cheap and nasty. So once a week we used to go down there, and uh, but she was a free-for-all, so we'd order the biggest steaks and, <laughs> and Russell Atkinson who was a mad smoker he used to grab packets of smokes and everything but Julie used to write out the bill hence the bill wasn't probably as, as high as what it should have been <laughs> so five pound schnitzel or not was pretty damn cheap I can tell you considering how much we loaded up but anyway so um, uh, but like I said she was a big part of all this whole deal so we move over to Germany and uh, just fantastic uh, because the, again it's that level thing you know you go there big workshops you know the the level of preparation we're talking big pantex and and uh you know b doubles and all the rest of it for these formula three teams uh, all the all the major manufacturers there was mercedes uh, volkswagen opal were all sponsors engine sponsors of a lot of the teams there and uh and they used to follow the dtm championship so we're talking you know i think at the norris ring uh, close to where we lived, you know, it was 130,000 spectators rolled up you know, on the weekend. Mm. And it was just to, to go from UK was one thing and then you go there and it was just next level stuff again. And and, um, and there we were right in the middle of it, you know, and uh, we, we followed the DTM championship. So you went to all these cool tracks and Arvis, which was a uh, an airport, and they used to market out with hay bales. And so you went off and on access roads and then on the main strip of this, this airfield, uh, just all these cool places, and uh, it was just it was just phenomenal, but tough mm. because Formula Three was hard, and and again it was one of those things where I was getting kicked around a bit and went, Jesus, you know, I, I'm not sure about this, and and, mm. and we pro- and we probably had didn't not pulling out the equipment card, but we definitely didn't have the best of the factory stuff. And uh, that was hard, but that, that was one of the toughest years because I thought this could break me, you know, mm. if I didn't start pulling out some results. Unfortunately, towards the end, uh, we did. And uh, that, that, that kept, me, kept me in the game again. But um, it also was probably one of the biggest mistakes I made in my career in leaving that championship. That's the end of part one of my podcast with Supercars champion and Bathurst winner Russell Ingall. This is a three-parter and they're all in the library ready to go now. So don't worry, we haven't staggered the releases on you. Make sure you head back and hit the gas on the next instalment. Part two's a ripper and includes a chance meeting with the great Ayrton Senna. The Stone Brothers Ford chapter and the part his cheeky mate Barry Sheen played. Very funny PR stunt that ended up on the front page, plus the enforcer tag, the upsides and the burdens of his famous nickname. Listener.